The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. I can't imagine the chaos that that day held. I mean, and we breached the, the perimeter, right? They're inside the wire. That's something that most people will never come close to. Well, the, uh, the NVA took over a machine gun post that was ours and turned the machine gun around and started shooting it at us. And I used to get a lot of grief because I used to dig foxholes all the time. And I dug a hole out there next to the stump in the ground. And actually, I cleaned that little bomb made a fight so and everybody gave me a hard time but when they turned the machine gun around started shooting it and I was the fourth guy in the hole What's up and thanks for listening in. My guest today is retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel Hank Dietering. In the opening clip there, he was sharing the time the NVA overran their base in Vietnam. He has a few stories to share. I really enjoyed talking to him. I think you'll love this episode. He's flown the A-4, the A-6, and the CH-53. He's a retired high school principal. I can only imagine what it would be like having a former Marine fighter pilot as your high school principal, but there are a few interesting stories in this episode about that as well. Before we get rolling into the podcast, a couple admin notes. As always, I'd like to thank my Patreon supporters. If you're looking to support the podcast or looking for additional content, you can swing over to theafterburnpodcast.com. There's links to Patreon there, as well as you can watch this. Patreon supporters get early access to all these episodes as well as bonus content. And most recently, there's two additional segments that live up on Patreon for Patreon supporters about the no-fly zone. So it kind of builds upon that. Again, you can swing over to theafterburnpodcast.com. You can check out the swag or you can swing over to Patreon if you're looking to support the podcast. As always, if you're listening and you like this content, just dropping a rating or review on iTunes and now Spotify that helps the podcast out. It helps it grow. It helps it get shown to more people. So if you do enjoy it, please consider just taking the five to 10 seconds to swing over to iTunes or Spotify and drop a rating or review. I really appreciate it. With that being said, let's get into the episode with retired Lieutenant Colonel Hank Dietering. So we are recording. So with that, sir, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm excited to have you on here. You definitely have a very broad career, not only from flying, but from teaching. And I do just want to lead into this before I get you to say who you are, because you sent over an article, spoiler alert, fighter pilot turned high school or high school principal. And this article, it made me laugh because you became a principal in 1995. The first year, it looked like you had a bunch of students who were just scratching racist comments in a bunch of benches outside the school. And your solution was to have the maintenance department burn the benches, which I absolutely love. And afterwards, the students asked, well, where are we supposed to sit? To your response was, that's not my problem. It's your irresponsibility. So I, I think a lot of that could be used today, although I don't know if you could do that today without... Uh, the woke mob going crazy, but I just absolutely love that. And so, sir, with that being said, I'd like to jump into it and just you give, uh, you know, a 30 to 60 second elevator pitch of who you are, kind of broad brush, and then we'll dive into the podcast. 
Okay, well, I joined the Marine Corps when I was 19 years old. I uh, had two years of college. I always wanted to fly. I didn't know what I wanted to do in college, but it was supposed to be a lot of money. And I was working and trying to save and pay off my debts. So I joined the Marine Corps at 19. Went through as an enlisted man going to flight school. Uh, they don't do that anymore. Now you have to be a college graduate. I don't know why. Yeah. You do. And the day before I got my wings, I got my commission. I was very lucky. I flew A4s for about a year. And I transitioned to the A6. Went overseas and begged my way back into an A4 squadron. And lasted about two months until my old SEAL showed up at uh, the van and he got me yanked up there and put in a six squadron. And I took one of my buddies, Lenny Foster, I took his job as a forward air controller and went out with the grunts for four months, came back and uh, finished up as one of the senior pilots. I was actually the junior officer, but one of the senior pilots in the A6 squadron. And then I was an instructor pilot for about Oh, six or seven months, and I went. I was the first company grade officer assigned to the college degree program. I went to Springfield College for two more years, where I started out originally. So I finished up at Springfield, got my master's. I asked the Marine Corps if I could do that. They told me no, so I did it anyway. I just didn't tell them. And when I finished, <laughs> I told them I got a master's degree. And they were very happy about that. The and so for everyone listening, you earned your wings in 1969. Is that correct? 67, I think. Okay, 67. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm looking here at a distinguished flying cross as well as an Navy accommodation medal. What that makes sense because that's 1969. So obviously, you would have graduated and then done some spin up. But the, the time period we're talking about, country is embroiled in, in war in Vietnam. It's much different than, I think, my experience going into the military and for the guys for the last 20 years. Very unpopular war at the time. Was that something that was on the forefront of your mind, thinking about, hey, I want to be a pilot, but you're, you know, all the turmoil that's going on in the country? Did you even think about that? Or is it like, hey, I want to fly. I don't care about all the stuff that's going on in the country and the unpopularity of the war. If you, because that, it's a, that's a tough thing to join, I would imagine, at that time period. Well, to be very honest with you, I didn't think about the unpopularity of the war as much as I thought about I wanted to fly. Okay. Time when I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a pilot. used to talk about it. When I was very young age, like five, six years old, I used to tell people I had an airplane factory. And <laughs> plane would fly over and I'd tell people those were planes from my factory. I'd get make up the name of somebody who was flying the plane for me. I always wanted to fly and, and had an opportunity to join the Marine Corps and become a pilot, and I did. I always wanted to join the Marine Corps, and when I saw that opportunity, I did. I know my dad told me that he joined the Army Air Corps during the Second World War. He was probably in the mid-30s when he joined. And he joined. He was working as a instructor out in the West Coast. He was training recruits, physical training. He was a, a PE teacher. And he had a job working for the government. And they were talking about trying to get this program that the Navy had. The Army Air Corps was trying to get this program to bring people in as officers. But my dad felt that he had to join the service. And one lady, I'm sure he went out and got drunk and joined the <laughs> the Army Air Corps. And he just he told me that during the First World War, when he was in New York City, people would come into his father's grocery store and tell his father, Henry, you have to be careful, they're watching you. Because Henry was a German who had emigrated to the United States. And they were watching him because he was a German and he was suspect. And my father always felt bad about that because all his dad ever wanted to do was become an American and be a good citizen. So my father felt an obligation to join 
And I fell one, and I, I joined the Marine Corps. I never thought about the problems of people being against the war until probably when I went back to college and again in Florida. It was not a very good place to be in college in New England campus in 1970, 71, 72. It's probably the worst place in the world to be on active duty. I remember my brother was in the platoon leaders class. He was at Bowdoin College, and he graduated five years after me. Well, I graduated the same year I did, but he was five years behind me initially. And I wanted him to be a commissioned officer in my wedding. So I called up headquarters Marine Corps and said, my brother's finished all his requirements, but he won't get commissioned until they have graduation. Can we get it commissioned early? And I knew a colonel up there who said, well, yeah, if uh, he's completed all his requirements, we can commission him. So I went into Boston and commissioned my brother. And then we were both in uniform. We went in town and walked into a place for lunch. We sat down and the waiter brought us two drinks. And I said, I didn't order these. He said, they're from the gentleman over there. And he pointed over in the corner. There were two guys sitting in the corner. So I figured one of them must have been the Marine Corps. I got up and went over to thank him. And I asked the guy, I said, were you in the Marines? The guy said, no. And I said, well, thanks for the drink. He says, buddy, anybody who's got the nerve to wear that uniform in this town deserves a free drink. <laughs> and that's what it was like in 1972. You know, it was a bad place to be. The fact that, yeah, you came back and went to school. Every Marine, in my opinion, it looks like a Marine, even 20, 30 years after they get out of the Marine Corps. Once a Marine, always a Marine. And so stand out like sore thumbs. And at that time period, not something I would imagine, as you alluded to, you really, especially in New England, you wanted to stick out, you stick out as a Marine. Did, and I guess that didn't sway anything, your motivation. Did you run any other like negative experiences going to school at that time, being a Marine? Well, I ran into them all the time, and I was on the <laughs> swimming team. I had swim as a freshman in the sophomore. As a sophomore, we made All-American freestyle relay. And I came back, and my junior year, I swam. My senior year, I was swimming, and then I got a job as a coach at a local high school. And I, I stopped swimming. But I used to run into problems all the time. You mentioned that you saw the Navy Combination Medal that I received. I received that on the Springfield College 50-yard line one of a football game between Springfield College and Quantico Marines. And General Jaskilka, who was the commanding officer at Quantico, came out and presented me the award. They read it, and I got lambasted in the, the school paper because really? of that award. And... It was it was kind of interesting the heat that I took for that. And here I, w I want to read it. We'll we'll jump to this and we'll bounce around just a little bit. So I apologize for that. But you were awarded the Navy Commendation Medal for heroic achievement while serving as a Ford Air Controller with the Third Battalion, Third Marines, Third Marine Division, in connection with the combat operations against the enemy in the Republic of Vietnam on 17 June 1969. The command post and other elements of the 3rd Battalion were established in a defensive position, and I cannot pronounce that province of Vietnam, when Marines came under a vicious ground attack by North Vietnamese Army Force employing mortars, automatic weapons, and rocket-propelled grenades. Reacting instinctively, First Lieutenant Dietering rep uh, repeatedly disregarded his own safety to request and skillfully coordinate supporting artillery fire and fixed-wing airstrikes, which I want to talk about that, on advancing soldiers. On one occasion, armed only with a pistol, he boldly engaged at close quarters a group of enemy soldiers who were moving toward the battalion command group, killing two of the men and forcing the remainder to abandon their assault. Inspired by his courage, the Marines fought with renewed vigor, killed 35 soldiers, and repulsed the North Vietnamese Army attack. So I can imagine that being read in, in, in New England, fresh off the Vietnam War, that that probably was not a popular thing. Very heroic your actions there and undoubtedly saved your fellow Marines on that day. So you, at that time, you know, this is about, it looks like four months after you you received your distinguished flying cross, but you're deployed to Vietnam. If you can kind of paint the picture for me, 
because you did some transition in there as well as you're during this time period, you're a forward air controller, but you'd move between the A4 and the A6. Is that correct? Yes. I, I made my way back into A4s. I had probably 400 hours in the A4, almost a year in the squadron before I transitioned. My buddies all got sent over to Vietnam and my CEO, Colonel Griffin, wanted me to stay with the squadron as a transition A6s. So he convinced me to stay with the squadron and not go to Vietnam with my buddies. So I flew the last A4 down to the squadron down to Buford, transitioned to A6s. And within, I'd say, a month of the squadron, my buddies leaving and me being the only junior pilot left in the squadron, I got transferred to uh, the group headquarters, transferred me to the A6 squadron and became an XA6 replacement. And I got orders within a few months overseas as an A6 replacement. I got to July and I pegged my way back into A4s. And to be honest, I think I just hit the day when the CO was having a pissing contest with his, his uh, personnel officer. Because I told the personnel officer who was the one to send me to 533, that uh, I wanted, I was an A6 replacement, but I had a lot of time in the A4, and I wanted to fly A4s. And he said, well, you're going to be the A6 pilot. I said, can I talk to the group CO? And he couldn't say no. So I went in to see the group commander, and he said, I understand you're an A6 pilot. I said, yes, sir, but I've got probably 300 more hours of the A4 than the A6. And I told them all the personal reasons, the professional reasons, the private reasons that I wanted to get back into A4s. And he looked at the the uh, major who was his personnel officer, and he said, uh, send Lieutenant Dietering down to one of the A4 squadrons. And he really pissed off the major. And then as I'm walking out the door, he stopped me and he says, Lieutenant, I stopped my chair and said, Sir, he said, What squadron would you like to go to? I said, 223. He looked at his major and he said, Send the lieutenant down to 223. <laughs> this is where all my buddies were. And I knew right then and there I was not going to go near that major for the rest of the time I was in Chula. <clears throat> and I lasted there about two months. My old CO from Cherry Point, North Carolina, came over and was assigned at the uh, the headquarters up at Danang and had an opportunity, Colonel Griffith had an opportunity to transfer some people between squadrons. And he took, told the people at uh, July, they had one more A6 pilot that they had listed. That was me. And he dragged me up and instead of putting me in 225 where he transferred everybody to, he put me in the squadron that he was going to get, 242. And I got sent to 242, and I showed up. I was the A6 pilot that wanted to fly A4s. So the colonel that had 242 at the time was not real happy with me. And he asked me if there was anything I wanted to do, and I said, I'd like to be a forward air controller. So as soon as he had the forward air controller slot, there was actually Lenny Foster's, but uh, Foster didn't want to go, and I did. So he sent me out to be a forward air controller. I spent four months on the ground, and luckily I was with a great battalion. We had a wonderful commanding officer, and I served with uh, a number of people who remain friends to this day. One was Chuck Krulak, who later became the commandant of the Marine Corps. The other was my buddy, Ollie North, and Ollie North and I were good friends. Ollie was a platoon commander. He and I share a birthday with Vladimir Putin. So oh, there you go. <laughs> Ollie's one year older than me, but he was actually junior to me because he's gotten to the Navy Academy. The Navy Accommodation Medal, you're a Ford Air Controller. You were not flying at the time, and that's a fairly normal thing for the Marine Corps to do. At least I know today, like, it's very common for guys to rotate out and become a JTAC or a Ford Air Controller, and they're embedded with a battalion, et cetera. So this time... You've deployed as an A4, you bounce around to the A6, and then you're doing a, I say a ground job, but you're embedded with a unit and you're, you're in the fight much more so than, you know, I equate myself as a you know, former 
Air Force guy, you know, we're looking at it from 15, 20,000 feet. Well, I, uh, it's funny, but I, I joined that battalion and there were two forward air controllers. One was myself. The other was a guy who was a helicopter pilot and he wanted no part of the job that he got so that he hadn't signed it looking into the helicopters that did resupply, and I directed all the airstrikes. But I also became the battalion three alpha, three assist, three alpha, the S2, and the engineers and the snipers worked for me. And the, the day, 17th of June, I went to take a message to the weapons platoon commander, and I asked a couple grunts who were in the hall where the lieutenant was, and they said, you're it. And then I inherited the weapons platoon, and I kept it for about a month. So I had a platoon commander's job for a period of time that I was out there. Now, the the uh, report says that I, I'm done with the pistol, but I can tell you that as soon as I got a chance, I picked up a, an M16 off a dead Marine, and I never got rid of it until I rotated back to the air wing. Well, I mean, what an incredible story. So you're calling in fires. Which obviously is a Ford air controller. That's that's the bread and butter there, but I can't imagine the chaos that that day held. I mean, enemy breach the the perimeter, right? They're inside the wire, and that's close quarter combat. That's that's something that most people will never come close to. Well, the uh, the NVA took over a machine gun post in Mazars and turned the machine gun around and started shooting it at us. And I used to get a lot of grief because I used to dig foxholes all the time. And I dug a hole out there next to the stump in the ground. And actually, I cleaned that little bomb crater and I made a foxhole. And everybody gave me a hard time. But when they turned that machine gun around and started shooting it, and I was the fourth guy in the hole. And over in the next hole next to us was an artillery, or excuse me, a naval gunfire spotter who would come to us off the USS St. Paul. And he'd been sent to us. Because we were going on an operation, and they figured we'd be somebody who's running able gunfire because we're going to need a lot of it. And usually that was my job, but uh, he was out there with us, and he was the first guy that got killed. He got hit by a mortar round, and he got killed right away. And I crawled over the holding us to get the frequency off the radio and called the St. Paul, which had just come on station from Yankee Station where they've been refueled. And reloaded. And I called the St. Paul for a fire mission. And the first question I got from the crew on board the ship where he came from was one of the words Lieutenant J.G. So and so. And I said, he's probably the team letterback. Maybe he was dead. You see, St. Paul never stopped firing. They emptied that ship, and there was an Australian destroyer with them. And both of those ships fired and blocked off the rear area behind us so that we never had to worry about them. I don't think we even called the second fire mission. We called one and they fired until they ran ammo. We don't have battleships anymore, but that's something that's really interesting to me. I've seen the footage of battleships that are just unloading and, I mean, it's just wrecking havoc on whatever the target is. But call and so it sounds like you're doing a naval call for gunfire. How did that work? I mean, is it passing coordinates and then making corrections? Again, I'm only exposed to like a documentary and seeing guys making artillery corrections. But when you got a big boat off the coast and that's shooting big old bullets at the ground, that's something that really wakes people up. How does that process work, or how did it work? Well, it actually ran worked a lot like the. Uh... Artillery mission. The only difference was some of the terminology and knowing how to call in the mission. Once you started shooting, you just adjusted them like you adjust artillery. When I was flying, I got to adjust the New Jersey ones. 22 miles inland, we had them shooting the bridge. And they fired, I think, one gun. They fired one salvo. It was a little short. We gave them add like 150 yards, 150 meters. 
and fire for effect, and nine-gun salvo. And we were on the gun target line, and we knew the maximum ordnance of the weapon. We could see the rounds coming through the air. I mean, they were huge, 16-inch guns, 16-inch, they were, they were like huge. You'd see them yeah. coming through the air. And when that thing hit the bridge, there was nothing left. You <laughs> couldn't see anything. It was just obliterated. It was amazing. I mean, you're shooting basketballs like 25 miles. Like nothing is going to survive if it gets hit by that. Oh, unbelievable. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing like seeing a battleship off the coast. I can remember being in Beirut in the 80s. And New Jersey was over there. And they would just come down the coast. They would train the guns on the, as they went by. They would just sort of swing the guns towards the, you know. Gosh. Uh, towards the uh, shore, and everybody on the shore would look at that thing and it would scare the hell out of them. The new ships don't look that way. Yeah. To be honest with you, I, I, I feel sorry for the pilots today. A couple of years ago, I was down at Qualico with a reunion, and I talked to two majors who were there having breakfast outside the base. And I talked to them. And they had both done two tours over the sandbox. I think one was in Iraq and I don't know the other one was where, where they were. They had done two tours over there. They had never flown a mission below 17,000 feet. And I said to them, you got to be kidding me. 17,000 feet, the only time we get that high was when we were flying test on. You know, sometimes we climb to 12,000, you know, TPQ hop, and they go, what's TPQ? And I'd explain and it was when the weather was so bad that you couldn't see the ground, they would give you an altitude, the airspeed, and they would fly at a certain heading. And then if you released the bomb when they told you to, it should, you know, it should fall in the target. But most of the time we flew, you know, a couple thousand feet. And they said, well, what's the lowest you flew? And I said, well, we used to drop an A-bomb on 100 feet. <laughs> And they couldn't believe these guys had never been below 17,000 feet on that mission. And I was flying airplanes that probably cost, you know, less than a million dollars a piece. And the helmets cost a million dollars. Right. I can remember thinking to myself that nobody's going to hit me, which is, I think, why the Israeli state guys ran in the high school. They're young, they have the best reflexes they ever had, and they think they're invincible. Nothing's going to hurt them. That's very true. It's funny you mentioned that because, yeah, everything we do is medium altitude, some shows of force down at 500 feet, and that's about it. Everything else, you know, you're dropping JDAMs or laser-guided weapons, you're mid-teens, and you want to be at 0.95, give that bomb as much energy as possible. But I did a red flag. The Israelis were there, and, you know, the SAM operators out there, they have cameras, and they're they're videoing a lot of this stuff, and the Israelis it was, I remember watching one of these things. It was at night, and this is seven years ago. And you could see the dirt being kicked up in the camera. They were flying so low. They still do it, you know. I mean, they're down there. They, these guys had to be at 20 feet, 20, 50 feet, just hugging the terrain, zipping around at night on NVGs, flying around as meagles. It was a wild stuff. I was telling somebody that if your gun sight didn't work in the A4, it was not a damning discrepancy. You just put a grease pencil mark and between, I think it was the second and third rivet was where it fell off and the first and second rivet was where if you shot, you know, and shooting rocket. But if your bomb site didn't work, it wasn't a down. You just graduated wing it. I can remember inventing some ordnance delivery once I had a mission on the side of a hill and there was like 500 foot overcast. So we came in and like 100 feet pulled up and lofted our bombs. We had snake eyes and napalm. We would loft them into the target, pull up into the overcast, do a wing over, and come out on a reciprocal heading, drop down to 500 feet, swing around, low, get lower, lower, drop in again, pull your nose up. And you, they wanted you to hit a little longer, you'd wait a little bit more. In short, you'd let it go a little bit sooner. We were, in, we were inventing. The, uh, the weapons delivery. But you had no moving map, right? You're doing this probably off like a topo map on your leg and then an INS, which I imagine probably has a pretty good drift rate, drift rate back, back in the day. We didn't How were you guys navigate? 
how well, how are you guys navigating below the weather? That's that's a little sporty. You just <laughs> we used to, when I went to flight school, we used to use tactical maps to our visual reconnaissance. Now, when I went to flight school, if you flew out of the training area, you got it down, and you had to know yeah. where it was. You had to visually keep yourself oriented. There was no controller, no nobody telling you you got to go out of the area, turn left, turn right. You know, you had to know where the field was. You had to be able to find the outlying field, but you had to be able to find those fields. The instructor would say, "Go to Fearcourt Field." You had to know where it was. Had to find it. So that, that I mean, that's how we flew. I'm, no big deal. No big deal. This back when men were fighter pilots. I, I mean, the 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 thought of dropping through the weather. It, it it does happen. I mean, I did it, but I did it over Syria. And I knew the train was flat, right? And, you know, you're only going to go down so far. But uh, dropping around in the hills of Vietnam, I'd say that feels a little sporty to me. I'm impressed. Well, I can remember flying over in, in Laos, like the A60s. We flew on over in Laos at the uh, rat package there. And we used to love it when there was thunderstorms because you'd be getting the thunderstorm and you'd be you'd be hidden from the guys on the ground. Otherwise, you you know, on a clear night, you'd, you'd fly along and every time you hit a turn point, you'd change your altitude, your airspeed a little bit, particularly your airspeed, so that they if they tried to gauge where you were going to be, they'd set up a sector of fire. They'd just fill a block of space. If you were in it, the fastest way to get out was to go straight ahead. Now, if you turned, you were going to be in longer. But I can remember sometimes you'd, you'd slow down, you'd see the fire in front of you, you'd speed up, you'd see it behind you. Then you'd actually turn and run out of the next the next light. So we used to love to get inside the, the thunderstorms. And we used to get St. Elmo's fire in the, in the cockpit. A lot of times the A6, you'd get a ball of like sparks. It would give up the, there was this canopy that was divided. And there was a steel rail in the, in the center between you and the bombardier navigator. And the ball would come up. And if you had a new navigator I'd never seen it before, you could hit it with your hand. It would just disappear. It would scare the daylights out of your navigator. <laughs> and the other thing we used to get was we'd fly in the, in the bad weather. And you'd have all these sparks out on the leaving edge of the wings and on, the, on all your bombs. You had sparks on the fuses of all the bombs that you'd see them out there. Little light, little bolts of lightning coming off. And of course, it wouldn't bother anything. They had to be released. And they had a, had a propeller on the front that had spit a certain number of times. I can, I, I will say this. You might be the first pilot I've ever met that uh, said, we just like flying in thunderstorms. <laughs> but... But I can, but I can understand the reason of why you like flying in thunderstorms versus that surface-to-air threat had to be incredible. There, can you talk to me a little bit about what what that was like? I know you'd mentioned changing airspeeds and altitudes. Was it pretty intense during that you know, 1969, 1970 time period you were there? Sometimes it was. Sometimes it was. It was funny. We'd get a brief at the. Group headquarters, and they tell us where the AAA was, and they would tell us where we could fire and where we couldn't. If you, a few times that we got to go up north before they shut down planes going up in the north, they would tell us where we couldn't fire, and they had AAA on top of schools and on top of hospitals and places, and just begging you to take a shot at them. So they would tell you, don't anybody shoot it back at these places you don't want to you don't want to take one out you're going to be taken out of school or hospital i can remember when jane fonda was up in hanoi everybody wanted to know where she was nobody would tell us whoops somebody probably would have gotten up there on their own just for the hell of it try to figure out i just whoops when we went, I should, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but when I was flying out in July in A4s, we used to take off with rockets a lot of times. 
And we take off the weather is bad, and they give us the TPQ bombing around, and we bring the rockets home. And the, the ground crews hated us to come in that home with rockets, especially in 19-shot pods, because the rockets would fall out when you land. We couldn't make an arrested landing with many rockets on board. They had to go out to the de-arming area, and a de-arming airplane take the rockets off. So we'd finish our TPQ, and they'd tell us, you know, we'd be up close to the DMZ, and they tell us, you know, to break left or break right 180 degrees after you release, break left or break right so you don't cross the red zone. And we'd just give somebody in the old arm your rocket signal. And we'd drop the bombs and we'd pull our nose up 45 degrees, launch the rockets, <laughs> and break you off and hit south. I always wondered what the dispersion was on uh, 45. 45 degree loft at about 14 grass feet on a 19 shot rocket plot. Probably some poor farmer up there. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine what the dispersion rate on that is. Can you, sure. can you talk to me a little bit about your distinguished flying cross? So I want to, I'll read an excerpt here as we kind of go jump back a few months from talking about the uh, attack on the base. But early on, I think in the deployment there for you on the 9th of February, 1969. Your wingman a flight of two A4 Skyhawks assigned to provide close air support for a Marine unit that was heavily engaged with the North Vietnamese Army Company south of Da Nang. And so despite extreme darkness and a low cloud cover, you expeditiously directed your aircraft to designated area and informed by the tactical air controller airborne the proximity of friendlies and the enemy positions which require precision ordnance delivery. And disregarding your own safety, you immediately commenced a determined attack upon hostile emplacements and came under heavy volume of hostile small, arm, small arms fire and machine gun fire. And ignoring the intense fire, you fiercely maneuvered your aircraft over the hazardous target area during repeated bombing runs, delivering ordnance to uh, devastating effectiveness. So this re repulsed the attack again and undoubtedly saved lots of Marines' lives on that day. But you're doing it at night and you're doing it under cloud cover. No MVGs, no precision-guided weapons. Again, this is a much different time period for those that are listening. And they can, I mean, for me, I'm trying to put myself in that scenario. And I guess, yeah, you didn't know what you didn't know at the time, not having all that technology. But now I think about jumping back into that very scenario, that's incredibly sporty and dangerous. Well, we used to do things like that all the time. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, I got in the single slide course because somebody on the ground decided to write us up. Or I, I probably flew better missions than that more dangerous mission. In a number of cases, I can think of one night, our squadron had the, the hot pad, and there was a USO show up in July. So I think Wayne Rogers and I were the two guys that uh, said we'd stick around and fly a third mission. So we flew a third mission, and it was crummy weather and overcast, and the grunts on the ground really needed more help. And we, we were making runs, dropping one bomb at a time, just so we could make a lot of runs and let the grunts maneuver. And we came back, and we knew where they were that they needed help, so we told the duty officer we would go out again, and Wayne and I flew our fourth hunt. And we went out, went back up, we, we took off and flew back, knew where to go. And we helped those guys out. We came back and we got grounded. But you and I got grounded for flying four hours without permission. Yeah. We were allowed to fly three with the CO's permission. We had group commander's permission to fly the fourth hop. We didn't even think about it. We just knew that those guys needed help and we were going to help. So we went out there. We got grounded. So that was one of the... I think I get grounded every every rank held up to manage himself. You know you're doing it right. And I'm just looking too. Two hundred and fifty combat missions is what you flew. Was that is that the same is that the same year or is that over the course of your career? No, that was that was in, in Vietnam. I flew 184. I flew I had ninety nine when I left. Okay. I went up to Danang. My CEO let me go back to Danang. Or back to July, and the CEO they let me fly my 100th mission in the A4, and I flew 150 in the A6. 
and spend four months in Fort Hector. There were guys that flew like 300 missions. I flew uh, the night before I I came home. I had an uh, Most guys quit flying about a week before they, they went home, but I flew the night before I left. And I went out to my airplane. I supposed to have six rock eyes. I had wall-to-roll rock eyes. I think I had 28 rock eyes, which are cluster bombs. And uh, when I didn't know, I found out later that the ordnance men and the, the ground crews were having a bet as to how many I would bring back. The guy who won was the guy who said I wouldn't bring back any. <laughs> yeah, it's not worth your salt if you bring anything back on the last one. I mean, incredible the number you had there. Again, most people don't touch that, especially in such a contested environment that you're operating in. I would say. Obviously, it's very, very dangerous, and a lot of guys didn't come back from it. And also just looking at um, your biography, you have a Purple Heart as well. Can you talk about that? Well, that happened on the 17th of June when I received that calendation. And to be honest with you, I didn't know that I was wounded by my radio operators. said, you're okay to tell me? I said, yeah, why? It's really bleeding pretty bad. I had, uh, I had, was down on the walking through the lines, and I'd spotted an NV soldier in a hole. And I said, Somebody tossed me a frag. Well, he threw one out of the hole. And the first one I got out of the I ducked and it went off. I don't know if it hit me or not. But the, the second one he threw, I was on my hands and my knees getting up when he threw the second one, and it rolled underneath me. It never dawned on me that I could have laid down on top. Save a bunch of people. I just took off thinking to myself, if I'm really fast, I'll only lose my legs. I probably got uh, more than like 15, 20 feet away when I went off. And I had shrapnel wounds in both arms and both legs. I later got shot in the arm as well. That was, a, you know, it says that I was re- requesting fixed wing airstrikes, but the truth of it is, my radio operator did most of that. I was out walking through the field doing a bunch of stuff that I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> I got this pilot out here with a pistol and an M16 just cleaning up shop. The that, Yeah, that's incredible. But you, again, you I mean, you obviously are injured from that, but you're still staying. Like, you, you get bandaged up and then and back to it, right? Like, you're not coming stateside. And spending six months of R and R, and then going I back was, to the fight. I was walking wounded. I can remember that night. I was sitting in a hole, and Colonel Schultz came over and brought me a long rat, just something, you know, something to eat, rice and beans or something, hot meal. He just gave me a couple of spoonfuls of his long rat, and then the corpsman came by and tossed me a couple of battle dressings and some sulfur powder. And that's what I put on my wounds because he had more important people to take care of. We had, I don't know how many guys got killed that day. I think there were 70 of us and probably 10 guys that didn't get wounded. That commander, almost everybody in the commander got wounded or killed. A lot of guys got killed that day. So I was, I was extremely lucky. But I think Think back on that day. I think that's the day I shouldn't survive. I was in Afghanistan. The Marine Harrier Squadron was at Kandahar, and they ended up moving over to Camp Bastion. And about a month after I left, the Taliban had breached Camp Bastion, which is a, is a in Camp Leatherneck, same same complex, very big base in in the Helmand Province. But the Marine CO, the Harrier Squadron, he was killed during the breach. But all these Marines, these fighter pilots. All they have is their M9, and they're they're charging, charging the Taliban, trying to fight them. They destroyed several Harriers in that. Again, several Marines were killed uh, during that breach. It's just something that's, I would say, relatively uncommon, especially at big bases for what you know has happened the last twenty years. Undoubtedly, it happened, and that's one example. Uh, but I, I imagine during that time period, that's something that's a little again a little bit more commonplace to have the Viet Cong, Vietnamese, uh, North Vietnamese Army breaching the wire and, and attacking the different forward operating bases? Well, 
you know, the Marines have a unique perspective on things. Everybody's a rifleman. And I was an instructor at the officer's basic school for two years. I had two platoons, and then I taught company tactics. And I worked for the guy who was the battalion commander when I was in Vietnam, who came to see on the basic school and got me to sign there when I got sent to Quantico. He got me a job at the basic school. But the basic school was a place where we taught everybody got went to Austin's Camden School or one of the military academies. We came to the basic school and they learned how to be a platoon commander. And that's what we taught them. Basic platoon commander stuff. Then they went to flight school if they were going to flight school. But first they had to go through the basic school and learn what it took to be a platoon commander. I know that they're still doing something very similar. So everybody had that training. Not everybody became an institute commander, but they all had the background. They all know how to do it. And I mean, it's not unusual for Marines to have assignments where they're, they pick up a rifle, they, you know, they might be in the airway, but they, uh, they defend the perimeter. One of the enlisted men who was a plane captain in our 86 squadron, Bob Foley, remains a good friend of mine. Bob spent three or four months as one of the security guys on the perimeter of the base at Penang. He was out there every night with a rifle watching the perimeter. I'll say, too, my experience when I was in Kandahar, I was working a lot with the Marines, specifically the KC-130, which Marine transport did tanking, and then it they loaded out with Griffin and Hellfire missiles. So they would be flying around southern Afghanistan doing resupplies for the Marines. But if a troops in contact kicked off or a high-value target popped up, this C-130 would just, you know, 90 left, get the coordinates, and would rip off a Hellfire or Griffin missiles. And the Taliban, they had no idea. They knew if they heard a Predator, a UAV flying around, they would run and hide. They wouldn't run and hide from fighters because at the time, the ROEs were so restrictive, they knew that the U.S. or the coalition wouldn't drop bombs. But they didn't know about that KC-130. They just thought it was a transport. And the Marines, again, they decked it out with a sweet optics, all sorts of stuff. And they would just, they would call it actually the triangle of death between the British JTAC and Hellman, this Marine C-130 that would just go wreck havoc. But I went over to Camp Bastion, you know, the thing, as you kind of alluded to, that fascinated me is I was watching several documentaries, reading books at the time, because the war had been going on for almost a decade at that point when I was there. But I saw several of the Marines that I was working with. These were F-18 pilots, Harrier pilots, C-130 pilots that had all done some tour. And they were in these documentaries as JTACs or Ford Air Controllers embedded with Marine units, holding an M4, getting shot at, calling in close air support. And then they would ro- rotate back to the air wing and, you know, go fly the F-18 again or whatever it might be, which now it, it doesn't happen in the Air Force. It used to be they'd pull fighter pilots, go do a JTAC tour occasionally, but now it's a whole separate career track. So you don't get that guys going as pilots being embedded with ground units for the most part. So, Well, the, the Marines sending flying close air support and sending pilots out as observers. During the Second World War in the Philippines, now General MacArthur. MacArthur wasn't a fan of it initially, but his generals, they saw what was going on and they loved it. The Marines have always sent pilots out because pilots know how to talk to the guys. I mean, I can remember right. one day I was talking to one of the pilots that was flying and dropping for us, and the radio operator next to me asked me, do you know that guy? I said, yeah, that's Lieutenant Colonel so-and-so. He says, Lieutenant Colonel, says, you're calling him such and such. I said, yeah, well, that's his call sign. But I, I, I mean, I knew the guys who were in the airplanes. A lot of them, not all of them, but I knew a lot of the guys. And I knew how close they could, you know, I could feel safe with some of those guys dropping weapons. I can remember one day, we wanted to, you know, I was Mike Riley, company commander, 
Mike wanted me to drop about 50 meters. He wanted us to drop, shoot guns about 50 meters away. and dropped napalm about 75 meters from the line. And the pilot wouldn't do it. And Mike says, give me that radio. He got on the phone. He got on the radio and said, this is Mike 6 actual. So I got two choices. You can kill me or the NBA can kill me. I'm betting on you. Just have <laughs> bombs when we asked for them. And we did. He says, I'll make sure everybody stays down. We had one kid that got hit in the hand with a piece of shrapnel. Mike was furious because the kid was taking a picture with his camera. And he had a piece of shrapnel in his hand. Mike was furious that the kid got hurt because he got hit. He had been down where he should have been. And right. In a hole. Hiding behind the log or something. That's close. Again, for those who don't realize, 75 meters. And if you're talking dropping napalm at 75 meters, I cannot oh, I even imagine the what the... You feel the heat. But there's, <laughs> nothing like, there's nothing like watching napalm go in. When somebody's dropping, so we're dropping it on you, it's terrible. They're dropping it for you and just in front right. of you is the greatest feeling in the world because you know that whoever's down there receiving that stuff is going to get fried. Not everybody yeah. did. Someone got down the hole, covered up, and they might have got the back burned and lost some of their hair, but the flame would... It's actually it. incredible to see what people can survive through because, I mean, it's not uncommon to... I mean, saw it multiple times. A 500-pound... I mean, I dropped it on a truck, pickup truck, hit right behind the cab, and then the driver got out and took off running down the road. You know, the fact that you can survive a 500-pound weapon blowing up a foot behind you is incredible, or a bunch of napalm going off on top of you and just get a little warm. It's it's weird. Well, I don't, I don't think there was ever a time when we dropped something on the air. We didn't have to go through and clear it out and finish the job. I would like to talk real quick, too, before we kind of start wrapping up here, you ended up flying CH-53s, is that correct? I did. I was at the, at the basic school as an instructor, and I made I got promoted to major. And I got a set of orders to helicopter transition. They were short majors in the helicopter program. And that year, they took seven of us, and they made us transition to helicopters. And they, they were all guys who were in non-flying billets. Mine was about okay. And they transitioned to helicopter and told us we had to do it for three years and then we could go back. Well, I transitioned. I was supposed to be a 46 replacement. I got to New River Air Station. The group commander asked me, would I mind flying at 53? I said, not at all. He says, you don't want to fly the 46? He said, sir, the only plane I've ever crashed at is a 46. If I don't have to fly, that's going to be fine with me. When I went out to be a forward air controller, I went up to the, the wing helo pad at Danang and to get a flight up towards Dong Ha. And I got on the 46, and we got up in the air, the thing lost power and crashed. All over the bird. I got out, got on the Yui. The next, next thing that was going my way was the Yui. I sat there with my feet hanging out the door of the Yui. Line up to the bank or Don Hunt thinking this is not a good way to start my Ford air controller story. <laughs> Foreshadowing. 53 pilot. And to be honest with you, I didn't want to do it, but I ended up liking it. And I had a chance to stick around or to go back. And I thought, I did not want to go back to the A6s. Be one of those. Pilots, some poor lieutenant or captain had a transition, some field grade officer had to do the transition right to the airplane. And I was going to get in the queue for a squadron with a bunch of guys who had been flying the whole time, but I hadn't. I thought if I stayed in the 53s, I could get a squadron. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to be a squadron commander. I didn't care whether it was helicopters or fixed my airplane. So I stuck around and, uh, the group commander and I saw things the same way. He was he was a great guy, and 
that. Promised me 53 squadron, and I got it. I was thrilled. The uh, funny thing about the 53, I was actually flying out of a small airfield in, in Florida. Uh, Sikorsky, it's a private field where they do a lot of their developmental tests, then bought by Lockheed, but they have the 53K that was going through its development and test while I was down there. And I remember they put this thing out on like the north end of the field. They chained it down. And then these guys, the test pilots would get in it and operated whatever power limit they were testing, right? And it was like, it was chain this thing to the ground and just hover for like six hours at 80% or whatever it was. But that was the test. It was just to strain the motors in the aircraft for as long as possible with the resistance. And I thought, that looks terrible. You know, helicopters in my mind are just shaking themselves apart. So from a guy who's flying fast jets to go fly the helicopter, that had to be, that'd be playing in the back of your mind, especially since you crashed in a CH-46. Well, flying helicopters, I thought was really relatively easy. It took me three flights to learn how to hover. And I think I could have gone out for an hour each time or 30 minutes each time. It wouldn't going to matter. I just needed three experiences. I learned how to hover. Once you know how to hover a helicopter, it's easy. You do everything at the same speed. And you know, you're, you're, you're dead low the whole time. So uh, 53 was a very good instrument platform. And I used to love to fly instruments in the 53. Most helicopter pilots love to fly VFR. I can remember right. once coming down from the a co-pilot with a young captain. We were flying, we got to the to New York and flight system to New York City was to go over the uh, George Washington Bridge at 700 feet and fly down the Hudson River 700 feet or below we got to the Arizona Bridge. We're getting lower and lower and the weather's getting shittier and shittier and I'm telling this guy you need the cold center and get a clearance. And I'm a big believer that if you climb up into instrument airspace and be at a VFR altitude, there's not going to be anybody at your altitude, VFR altitude. But you're going to be where you don't belong. And when you call somebody up and tell them VFR in the good, such and such points, they're going to find you as fast as they can and get you out of there. If you call them and tell them you're VFR, they're going to get to you when they when they have time. <laughs> but this pilot would not try to go for instruments. We got closer and closer. I'm looking over at the Staten Island, thinking to myself, the Verrazano Bridge is really close. And I grew up in near northern Jersey. I've been in the canoe through the harbor under the Verrazano Bridge. I knew exactly where the, the uh, ferry from Staten Island was. I knew where the Verrazano Bridge was. And I grabbed the controls and I pulled up. And I can Tell you, Sergeant Frank was the Gertrude. I think he was the staff sergeant. And he said that we almost hit the big cable, the big thick cable that held up the bridge as we went through the, through the dip in the low spot of the bridge. And it scared the hell out of me. Yeah. But I bet. This guy did not want to fly VFR or fly IFR. And I just want to stay VFR. We would have flown right into a pre I'm convinced. Oh, geez. Yeah. For some reason. Yeah. Helo guys just, they like being low and they like being VFR. I can't blame them, but, you know, IFR, it's not the scariest thing, you know, unless you, you never do it. But I would like to ask, so you took, you retired from the Marine Corps and slightly different path than I think most people do. Most people end up in some kind of flying job post-military, especially if they were a pilot in the military. Mm -hmm. But you ended up becoming a high school biology teacher and then became assistant principal and principal of a high school. What kind of led you down that path? I had a chance to fly when I got out of the Marine Corps. I went down, a friend of mine had, was the chief pilot down at uh, in Delaware for one of the big corporations down there, one of the chemical companies. And he took me down, he wanted me to come fly with him. And I looked at the planes they had. They had a Gulfstream 5 and a Lockheed Lodestar. It's a really nice airplane. When yeah. I found out what they did, I thought to myself, this is going to be worse than the Marine Corps. 
these guys are coming on every morning, never around. They have to get up early, pre-flight the airplane, get it loaded up, take somebody where they want to go, hang around until they're ready to come home, go to Europe in a bit of snows. I want to have breakfast with my kids and be with my family. And so I, I took a job as a teacher so that I had a school and horse farm, a 40-acre farm, 30 acres, and they had 10 acres later on. And I figured I had the opportunity to spend the summers building horse barn to the things I wanted to do. And I took the assistant principal's job for the same reason. I took the assistant principal's job. And initially, I uh, you worked eight months out, I guess 10 months out of the year. And I had the summers off. And so that was pretty good. I eventually became the principal. But it's funny, I, I was back at the school a couple of months ago, and I haven't been there since 2002. So I've been gone 20 years. And I ran into one of the guidance counselors that I had hired. She's still there. And she says, we were talking about you the other day. I said, why are you talking about me? She said, we could use you back here. But I'd last 10 minutes. <laughs> I mean, I, I ran the school the way I ran my squad, and I did what I thought was the right thing. And I, I believed that you had to treat everybody the same. And when good kids behave badly, they got treated like bad kids. When bad kids behave well, they got treated like good kids. But I was the kind of guy who believed that, uh, that we could do things that gave students, made them feel like they had some responsibility. And that they had some control of where they were going to go and what they were going to do. Uh, I initiated student projects in the school. I had, you know, you talk about the benches. I eventually went down to the uh, ag shop. And I asked the ag kids to build me some new benches. <laughs> and they did. And when we were done, I went down. I bought pizza and, and Cokes. So we brought the benches out, put them where the old ones had been, and sat there and we had pizza and coats while everybody inside could see it and we're outside enjoying ourselves. And then they said to the kid, they said, now don't let anybody trace these benches. I hate to have to burn your benches like I burned the other one. Well, I think those benches are probably still there and they still don't have anything written on them. I would say, I venture to say probably most schools today could use a retired Marine running and doing a lot of influence around there. That's something, again, I think that's a profound statement when you see, and I, I know that had to be etched in the minds of those students, seeing those things lit on fire and then just gone, right? Like dad's not messing around anymore. You know, it's, it's, it's serious. And that's something that's kind of, I think, lacking today. Well, and, and the students know that if they mess up the new benches, they're going to have the, and kids were going to go kick their ass. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I was going to let it happen. <laughs> you get, you have buy-in and ownership that way, right? You know, it's, that's how you, you get it. And there's going to be some ownership of that. Well, sir, I would like to say thank you for joining me on the podcast. Before we depart, I, you got a lot of experience under your belt. If you found yourself, your teenage, you walking on the street today, would there be any advice you'd give him? Any any tips, tricks, or tell them to do something different? I don't know if I tell them to do things differently because I probably wouldn't know what he was up to. But I probably tell him the things that I learned. I think there was a guy named Paul Ricks called The Lessons from Paris Island. And one of those lessons is do the best that you can, even when nobody's watching you. And do the, the difficult right thing instead of the easy wrong thing. It's so easy for kids to do what their friends want them to do instead of what they know is right. Kids know what's the right thing to do. The thing they got to do is to do it. And I would tell them, you're going to be better off doing what you know is right. You're going to feel better about yourself, and none of the people are going to feel better about you. There's a few other things I'd totally tell them as well. Those are probably the first couple of things I'd tell them. Well, sir, again, thank you for taking the time today to share your stories. 
to me, they're, you know, very interesting and incredible just to jump back in time into a different era and a whole different set of problems and things to have to solve. But hearing, you know, the fighter pilot come out is pretty awesome. So thanks again for taking the time today and sharing your journey. My pleasure. Thanks for listening in today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Again, you can swing over to the afterburnpodcast.com. You'll find links to Patreon over there. You can watch this episode as well as Afterburn Podcast shop. Until next time, don't bring a week. The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.